This evening we are recording a study in the Epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 4, the subject being the not only the unity of the Spirit, which we've already partly considered, but those things that flow out from it, commencing Ephesians 4, verse 7, and actually going right down to 17. It doesn't mean to say we shall traverse all that ground this evening, but that's the portion in front of us. As most of those who take these recordings know, it is our habit to read a portion of Scripture together, and so if you care to join us and switch off, our reading this evening will be Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We have already seen the balance of truth in this epistle to the Ephesians, how chapters 1, 2 and 3, giving us the great revelation of doctrine, is balanced by chapters 4, 5 and 6, and pivoted on the central word of the epistle, the word worthy, a word itself which introduces the thought of balance and comparison. We have looked at the first enjoyment upon us, First, with regard to the type of mind with which you should approach this service, and then the first act of worthy walk itself. The type of mind is with all humility of mind, as the word is translated elsewhere, with all lowliness, long-suffering, forbearance, and in love. And then, the first act of the worthy walk is to safeguard the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We've got to hold it fast, but it's to be bound by peace, not by war. We do not strive in the wrong sense. We strive in the true sense, uh, but we've got to watch our step. But it's so easy to enter into a combat and a conflict, and to win a victory at too great a cost. We must never forget that we're stewards, and that we must, first of all, be faithful. Uh, but we do not strive with flesh and blood. A tremendous problem we have in front of us to keep the unity of the Spirit and to keep it in the bond of peace. Well now, we pass from the unity of the Spirit to other teaching which arises out of it. And that starts with verse 7. Verse 7 says, But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. You remember in the, I think it's the Gospel according to John, it says concerning our Saviour, that the Spirit was not given by measure unto him. Not given by measure unto him. Well, if we are going to be graced according to the measure of the gift of Christ, it's measureless. There is no possibility of the source of our supply running dry. You might just as well say to somebody who was sitting down by one of the gigantic reservoirs that contained the millions of gallons for this London of ours, now don't you have another cup? Why? Well, you don't want to exhaust the supply. Can't, can't think of it. It's measureless. Well, of course, that immediately says what sort of persons ought we to be if we are in touch with this fathomless, boundless, measureless supply that's at our disposal. But the first thing I think we want to remember is that we have here in this structure an emphasis upon a measure three times. You'll notice on the chart that you have in front of you, first of all we have the measure of the gift of Christ in verse 7. Then we have the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ in verse 13. And then we have the measure of every one of the members doing its part. So it is pretty comprehensive. The measure of the gift of Christ giving us grace sufficient. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ marking the goal to which we press. And the measure of each member doing its part which helps in the building up of that very body in love. The next thing is to observe the way in which verse 7 commences by that little word, but. At other times we stress the value of watching this word, but. 
It brings you to a halt. It says, now, be careful, you may, may make a wrong deduction. But, although I've said this, but, do watch your step here. So what is the little danger? The little danger, and it's very prevalent, of being swallowed up in a mass. It's the unity of the Spirit. It's one body. And you say, whoa, I don't count. What does it matter about me? I'm only just a little speck in comparison. That's wrong, friends. This Bible anticipated a good many words that have been uttered since by champions of civil rights and freedom. But you know, one of the things that has grown in the course of centuries is the recognition of the right of the individual. The individual, not merely a mass, not merely a state, not merely a nation, but the individual. But it's here. He says, whatever you do, never forget that a unity is made up of units. Obvious, isn't it? That a million is really a million ones. If you, you cannot discount a one. If you haven't got a one, you, can't, you start, can't start arithmetic. It doesn't matter how much you possess, it's all so many ones. That's what a million is. That's what a thousand is. So many ones. We all count. So he says, not nearly every one of us, you get the thought better in English if you say, but unto each one of us, each one of us, we suddenly forget the unity that may comprehend millions and we simply look at ourselves for a moment. To each one of us, if we are members of the body of Christ, we are not useless members. I don't say there are any useless members in the ordinary body we have. But there used to be said that there were a good many spare parts in the body that you could do well without. And when a surgical operation was performed sometimes, they had a chance, they took the things out and they said, were no use. They don't do it now. They realise they have their function. But oh, how much more in the spiritual sense, in the true body of Christ, no member is superfluous. No member can be just done without. On the other hand, there's a wonderful adaptation on the part of the ordinary human body. If you have a limb removed or even an organ, you can, you can somehow manage to live. But that's not ideal, is it? And so in the church, never has been members who are fully functioning as they should. And yet the church has survived. But what would it be when it reaches the perfect man, the measure, being the stature of the fullness of the Christ? So there's plenty on ahead of us. But we'll begin at the beginning then. But to each one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. You do know the story, and I think it may be worth repeating for the sake of stressing this point about the idea that, oh, I, I don't count. It's related about a village in the wine-growing district of France in earlier days. And the old curie of the village, he, he uh, expected, as a part of his due, that each one of the villagers should bring a flagon of wine and pour it into the butt that belonged to him. And that had been done year after year. As they got their crop in and they made their wine, they brought their flagon and poured it into the butt as their little gift to the village priest. Well, unfortunately, one year they all had a brainwave. They all said, without telling one another, they all said, well, my little drop doesn't count. So they all took water instead. Of course, if a few of them had taken water, it wouldn't have been so bad, but they all did it. Well, you see, what, what will happen if every member of the body said, well, I don't count. Well, nothing would count. This body would be so far as a functioning concern dead. So let us remember that it's a false modesty, a false modesty to say, I do not count. You know the man who had the false modesty? He was rebuked by the Lord. He said, oh, he said, I knew you were an austere man and I only had one talent. Well, he said, if you'd have traded with that one talent and you'd have got one in, in return, that would have been the same percentage as a man who had five and got five. He received a well done, so would you. The Lord doesn't say every one of us are apostles. 
He says, we've all got different functions and different parts to play. But just as surely as in the one body, each one part relates to another. And from another point of view, the apostle has used the figure and, say, and says, the eye cannot say the hand, I have no need of you. And so we must remember that there can be a false modesty which will undo the work of grace just as surely as presumption uh, can spoil it also. Strictly speaking, we move from um, the word gift of Christ to verse 11, like this. But unto every one of us, or each one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ that he gave some apostles, some prophets, some pastors, so on, for a certain work. He picks out some of the outstanding gifts. But before he does that, he seems to be under some necessity of stressing the ascension of Christ. By the way, before we leave this, as uh, it may be uh, useful to stress, I've referred already to the talents. It says, to everyone according to his several ability. And there's there's a balance in the way that God gives gifts to men. In some cases, we have seen that the most unlikely people have received the most unlikely gifts. But they are generally the exceptions. And God doesn't give to a person who has no natural ability a job that would be worrying him and which he did very ineffectively in nearly all ways has a reference to the several ability, the way in which your circumstances, your upbringing and everything will help you to perform this service. It isn't something that's poured into you irrespective of your being. He uses what you have and you lay it at his feet. You, you do not see any change in the temperament of the Apostle Paul. You only find that it's now dedicated to the service of the Lord of grace and love instead of breathing out threatening and slaughter because you disagreed with him. But he was the same man. And he doesn't ruin or spoil our individual personality. He just takes us and he uses and graces and enables us to lay it at his feet. Well now, the bit that slipped in between is the emphasis upon the ascension. Wherefore he said, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that is a free rendering from Psalm 68. I think it would be wise to turn to Psalm 68, only because the Apostle has referred to it and just see the way in which it uh, it occurs and how he has used it. Psalm 68. It's speaking about Mount Sinai particularly, verse 8, the earth shook, the heavens also dropped to the presence of God. Even Sinai itself was moved at the presence of the God of Israel. And then we have, in verse 17, the chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them as in Sinai, in the holy place. Again, he's speaking about the holy place. Thou hast ascended on high, Thou hast led captivity captive. Thou hast received gifts for men, yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. Now it's very obvious as we read Psalm 68, especially if you read it right through, that he's not talking about ascending up to heaven. He's rather talking about ascending the hill of the Lord. And here we have an example of the way in which sometimes the New Testament quotes the Old Testament. It takes a passage out of the Old Testament, not because that Old Testament passage is teaching the truth that's in view, but it provides just a jumping off ground, it provides just a few words that enable you to start your story. It's very much on the same line that I took the candlestick out of the tabernacle as a picture of the unity of the Spirit But I had no intention of teaching that when Moses was given the tabernacle to build and put the branch candlestick in its place, 
that he knew all about the unity of the Spirit. That's nonsense. It's only that it was a convenient illustration. Now, that would appear to be strange to us unless we acquaint ourselves with the type of reasoning uh, that uh, is very prevalent among rabbinical writers. The Apostle Paul was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel. And instead of arguing like the, uh, the logic of Aristotle teaches the Gentile, he argued along lines that to us would prove nothing. You must remember that. And so he's lifted out a verse and says, here we have a passage which speaks about ascending. I want you to remember that. Now he says, I'm going to tell you how that applies to Christ. Verse 9. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? Here again we must stop. Descending into the lower parts of the earth. As it stands, it could possibly mean right down into the bowels of the earth. But it doesn't mean that. It means this. He descended first into the lower parts, that is to say, the earth. I've never gone as high as the top of Mount Everest, and I've left it too late ever to attempt it. But a person who's standing on the top of Mount Everest is a good deal nearer to heaven than the person who's standing in the valley, isn't he? But, what difference is there between the man on the top of of Everest and the man in the valley when you compare the distance between either of them and where Christ sits at the right hand of God far above all? Oh, it, it makes very little difference. Wherever you look on the earth, from heaven, it's the lower part, isn't it? That's all. Not he went into the lower parts. He descended from heaven, which was above all, to the lower parts, that is to say, the earth. If you want the grammatical expression defined, it is called the genitive of apposition. The one over against the other. The church, which is the body of him, is genitive of apposition. The church is the body. The lower parts are the earth. That's all. Let's look at this word again. Verse 10. He that descended is the same also that ascended. The same one. He descended. He ascended. You notice this is the the argument of Philippians 2 from another point of view. Verse 6, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Here's the one that descended. Surely there's a descent here, isn't there? from the high glory of equality with God to the death of the cross. Can there be a greater descent conceived? This one that descended is the same that ascended far above all. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and graced him with the name which is above every name that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He that descended is the same that ascended far above all heavens. There are hints in the scriptures that there is more than one heaven. You know in Genesis 1, verse 1, the Bible opens with a statement that in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And then, when the six days creation is commenced, we discover on the second day that he made a firmament or a stretched out thinness and called that firmament heaven. And that firmament is said to be stretched out like a curtain for God to dwell in. It's a tabernacle that when the work is done will be folded up and put away but heaven itself will remain unchanged. It's the temporary heaven that's going to depart like a scroll. And how many layers there are, how many heavens there are, we do not know. All that we know is that Christ ascended up far above all heavens. And Hebrews comes along and supplements it, and says in chapter 4, that Christ as the high priest passed through the heavens. Our version says, into the heavens. But the word dire, diakamai, doesn't mean in, it means through, always means through. He passed through the heavens 
And the Hebrews says that he's made higher than the heavens. And yet he's in heaven. So we must have one heaven, which is the superlative place where God's throne is, and then heaven beneath it, where his administration goes on temporarily for this world of sin and his purpose of salvation. And this is said that he ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. Can I take you back again in mind to Philippians? Don't turn to it. But in Philippians it says, he made himself of no reputation. Now you know, I think you do, that the actual word is, he emptied himself. He emptied himself when he descended. And when he ascended, he filled all things. Can you understand when it says that in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily? It's that which he voluntarily gave up. He now takes back again and unites us with him. The emptiness of Philippians is its glory. The filling of Ephesians or Colossians equally is its glory. Whether Christ empties himself or whether he's the fullness of all, it's just wonderful. Now this is associated with the church to which we belong. The end of chapter 1. He has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him that fitteth all in all. Just now, the headship of Christ is limited to the body. He is not universally accepted yet. It's much the same spirit that we read in Hebrews 2. We see not yet all things under his feet, but we see Jesus. He started. We see not yet Christ accepted as head over all things, but to the church, yes. So we, are the, are the sort of an anticipation of the great goal to which God is pressing. We are called not only the body of Christ, but the fullness of him, that one who in his turn fills all in all. What a title. What a breathtaking thought to think that we can be in some measure related to Christ as God is, as Christ is related to the invisible God. If it weren't said in scripture, we should hardly dare to take these words into our mouths. Now we get to the brackets closed. We receive gifts, and these gifts are from the ascended Christ. Now, he says, he gave some apostles. Perhaps you begin to realise now that he had a reason for slipping in the ascension. (coughs) If you were asked, To what chapter in the New Testament would you turn to discover the names of the twelve apostles? I suppose you know that you would turn to Matthew the tenth chapter. Shall we do it, just to make sure? It isn't every one of us could give the names of the twelve apostles. We know a few of them, but not all of them. Matthew 10. And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the publican, James the son of Alphaeus and Livius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now this company of twelve were called and chosen by Christ when he was here on the earth, on the earth. And they had a limited ministry. They were to not go into the way of the Gentiles. They were to go to Israel. Well now for the apostle. I'm an apostle. And somebody say to him, but you weren't there when our Saviour called those twelve? No, he said. He that called men when he was on earth has since called men after his ascension. And Paul was the first of the apostles to be called after his ascension. Others are named. Uh, It's not quite possible to say how many apostles belong to the new order, 
But I think you can count seven. There's Barnabas, who is also associated with Paul by the name of an apostle. And then he sometimes speaks about us apostles, but he's writing the epistles, as though there's a few in the offing that have been mentioned before. But it's very clear that there is an intention on the part of Paul to draw your attention to the fact that there was one order of apostles, the twelve which are associated with Israel and the New Jerusalem, and sitting upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and another set, who were not called until Christ ascended, and sat down at the right hand of God, of whom Paul is the chief. The, the twelve were forbidden to go to the Gentiles. Paul was definitely chosen to go to the Gentiles. And so, we have a clear-cut definition that there were more than one order of apostolic ministry. Shall we now look at this a little closer? And he gave some apostles. The word apostle, apo, stello, has come over into our English language, but it's strictly speaking still a Greek word. Apo means away from, and stello is the verb I said. An apostle is one who is sent. Now Christ is the apostle. Hebrews chapter 3 says, Consider him the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. He was the apostle because he was sent. He's the high priest because he's gone back. He that descended is the same as ascended. He's the apostle and high priest of their profession. He's the apostle and head so far as we are concerned. Over and over again in John's Gospel you read that the word the words sent me. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. And in the great prayer of John 17 that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And then he says I send you even as he has sent me. He that receiveth you, receiveth me. And he that receiveth me, receiveth not me with him that sent me. Here's apostolic succession, friends, if you want one. That everyone that the Lord sends, it ultimately goes back to the Father that sent him. For you're only representing him, however small that representation may be. Or to make a difference to our attitude to one another and to the world and to our witness, to think that However small the embassy we may be conducting, however slight the work may be, we have been sent from one who was sent who represents the Father to this poor world. So we're not all apostles except in the widest possible sense. He gave some apostles. He gave some prophets. Now will you notice that the apostles and prophets were both inspired people the Apostle didn't need always to read a book. He spoke what we say ex cathedra. He spoke as an Apostle. He didn't merely read Scripture. He wrote Scripture himself. And a prophet. He didn't always have to turn to the book and read what was there. He spoke by inspiration. And if you'll turn to chapter 2, you'll discover that the Apostles and Prophets are spoken of as a foundation ministry. Verse 19, chapter 2. Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. There's no idea that the apostles and prophets are usurping the place of Christ. He is the one great platform upon which all must build. You see, Paul speaks of Christ as the chief cornerstone, and Peter speaks of Christ as the chief cornerstone. And they're both building different parts of a building. But they're all resting upon the same Christ. He underlies all redemption. Whether you belong to Israel or whether you belong to the Gentile, whether you're kingdom or church or body or bride. The chief cornerstone. But onto that foundation was the lesser, lower, lowlier foundation of the apostles and prophets. They were a foundation ministry and they haven't been continued. All down the ages there have been false prophets and there have been false apostles but no real ones, no genuine ones. They were given, they did their work and they finished. 
Well, what follows? Are we now left in this present day with no ministry? Oh, no. We haven't got apostles. And we haven't got prophets. But we've got the apostles' words in these epistles. We've got all the scripture has to say with regard to things to come, whether that's the main meaning of the word prophet or not. So what do we want now? We want faithful men whom the Lord will give some measure of natural ability who will be able to help others to understand what's already written. So what does it say? He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Will you turn to Second Timothy just for a moment? And you know that Second Timothy is the last epistle that Paul wrote. So this is some time after Ephesians was written. Paul is now about to finish his course. And he doesn't say to Timothy, now, Timothy, you've had hands laid upon you, Timothy, so uh, you're going to be another apostle. The apostle Timothy. No, no. No. He never called an apostle. What he is called is an evangelist. 2 Timothy 4, verse 5. But watch now in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. So Timothy was the second order. He wasn't the first. He wasn't the apostle. He was the evangelist. Now what about the teachers? Chapter 2. Now therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. So we've got all the ministry there, you see. We've got the foundation ministry, the beginning, the apostle, and the prophet, and then we have the subsequent ministry for the continuation of the building, the evangelist and the teacher. The evangelist is a sort of a lower order of an apostle, and the teacher is a lower order of prophet. If I had any gift of teaching, I don't know, that's a matter of conjecture, yet I don't speak out of my own heart and out of my own head, like a prophet might have spoken straight away. No, I have to go to what the book says. And it's a matter of faithfulness. And you do notice that it says, act to teach. I was earlier saying it was according to their several ability. And it may have flashed through your, your mind, oh no, God can overrule all our difficulties and all our objections, of course he can. But normally, normally I say, that's all, God gives the gift of teaching to a man is apt to teach. Says so. God doesn't work unnecessary miracles. And a person who's absolutely struck dumb when he stands up to speak to anybody, well, God can use him, of course, with stammering lips. But in the ordinary way, he takes what you bring to him and he sanctifies it and uses it. And if you have, if he wants you to be a teacher, I think he will give you an aptness to teach. And if he wants you to speak in a building which is a fair size, he will give you a voice that will reach the person in the back seat. I think so. Generally. Normally. Sometimes it may be the other way around because we can't live it gone. Well now there's one other title slipped in here that you notice. He gave some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Pastors and teachers. Now you might know, as possibly you do already, that the word pastor is just the ordinary, everyday word for shepherd. When it says in John 10 of the Lord Jesus Christ, I am the good shepherd, that's the word pastor. So let's put it in. He gave some apostles and some prophets, that was the foundation ministry and that work's done, and some evangelists and some shepherds and teachers. Two thoughts seem to be here. First, without laboring the point that it is a shepherd. Because, you see, you've got to be a little bit watchful about these figures. If you are going to be absolutely rigid with regard to the word shepherd, you've got to be absolutely rigid with regard to the word sheep. And if somebody says, bah, to you, you mustn't be uh, upset because that's what a sheep says. Or would you say, oh, no, we're not actually sheep. Oh, you're not. I see. Well, they're not actually shepherds then. It must, it must cut both ways, mustn't it? So all through the Old Testament scripture, you get the idea of those who have the care of God's people 
It's the one figure that stands out more than another in the scriptures is the shepherd. Oh, what a picture it is. The rod and the staff that is spoken of by Psalm 23. The defense of the flock against the attack and the staff, the shepherd's crook, to pull them back, to lead them, to correct them just a little if needs be. The shepherd. And now there are those who have spoken about as false shepherds. And shepherds who feed themselves instead of looking after their flock. And hireling shepherds who leave the flock defenseless. And so on and so on and so on. Then of course, there is a very intimate relationship because the people of Israel particularly are called sheep. We are the sheep of thy pasture. And it's also to be admitted and acknowledged that no time do you read in Paul's prison epistles that the church of the one body, the church of which Ephesians stands at the forefront, are ever called sheep. So what? We have then a gift of ministry to a church. We've got a shepherd given and he's got no sheep to look after. Now I do know some few people who say, my, that's an ideal job. You know, the place where the work's given out. Or you'd have people queuing up for that today. But I'm sure of this, that our Saviour never gave anybody an office that was a mere sinecure. If he gave him a pastor's job, there were sheep to look after. And if there are no sheep inside the church of the one body, do you mean to tell me there are no sheep outside? Isn't that the very function of John's Gospel? To put a great ring round the smaller ring of the church of the one body, and says to you are the privileged people inside the small ring. You are members of the body of Christ. You are not cheap. But outside you, at your very door, in the very street in which you worship and live, there are sheep. And you can step out from your glorious calling of the church of the one body. And you can go to those poor sheep, and you can teach them all that John's gospel teaches, and you're not betraying the truth. That's what God wants you to do. You can always step down from your high position and lift somebody up a little bit as long as you do not betray the trust that's been given to you. If by doing that you have to break the unity of the Spirit, then God forbid. But it doesn't follow. So, I don't know whether you've ever criticised some child of God who saw the truth of the mystery, who rejoiced in the high calling of Ephesians, and yet he spent most of his days down some dingy back street in a tin chapel, and all he could do was to preach John 3.16 to the other sheep which John ministers to. Well, don't think criticise him anymore, friends. He may, he may have been one of the gifts of the ascended Christ. So we've now got so far that these gifts have been given for a purpose. You won't notice there are three ministries involved in this uh, section. We've already looked at the three measures. We have what I will try to explain in a moment in verse 12, the ministry of readjustment. That's verse 12. Then in verse 15 we have the ministry of growth, may grow up in, uh, into him in all things. And then in verse 16, the ministry of edification or building. Now first of all, let's have a look at this uh, goal in verse 12. All these gifts, whether apostles, and prophets at the beginning, or the subsequent evangelists, pastors and teachers afterwards. They had in front of them a goal. Four. The perfecting of the saints. Now there are two words which are translated perfect, and they must be kept apart. Um, the first one, the one we know so well, is derived from the word which means to reach the end. I'll put it on the board and uh, <coughs> the word telos telos, T-E-L-O-S is the word end. Then cometh the end. The word tenaios is a person who reaches the end. And so he goes on unto perfection. It's the word used by the apostle in a verbal form when he said, I have finished my course. The course being the, the race course that he was running. He touched the tape at the end. And so the word 
perfect. The one that is often used means to go right to the end. So we have our word television, telescope, telegram, all the words that have to do with telephone, sending a message or seeing something that was a long way off at the end. That's one word. But this word, it means rather to knit together. So perhaps you'd like to see the first occurrence in the New Testament. Matthew, the fourth chapter. Matthew, the fourth chapter, verse 21. And going on thence, he saw other two brethren, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a ship with Zebedee, their father. Perfecting, as that word is, mending their nets. If ever you came to this chapel, I don't think you'd get it just now because our Sunday school has gone down to very, very small number. Uh, but when they were a little bit stronger, if you were up here and the Sunday school was down there, you may have faintly heard them singing a chorus, I will make you fishers of men. You know that one? And then they started again. You say, hey, wait a minute. They're singing something else. I've never seen that in the book. And they sing down there the second verse. I will make you menders of nets. Menders of nets. The idea was to say to the children even, look, look, God knows what he's about. First of all, our Saviour called two men who were casting their net into the sea. He said, I'll make you fishers. And then he, he, he called two men who were not casting a net into the sea. They were on the shore, mending the nets. What earthly good? Oh, you can't say earthly good when it's a sea, can you? But what good would a net be if it was never mended? You see, there's balance in God's gifts to men. He doesn't make all of us evangelists. He doesn't make all of us teachers. He doesn't make all of us pastors. He distributes his gifts. Some are catching the fish and some are mending the nets. I've had to take that line with some people who in the early days criticised me badly because I wasn't anticipating Billy Graham. But God never gave me that gift. He never told me to do it. If he said to me, I want you to be a teacher, am I going to turn around and say, oh, but what are they all going to say because I'm not preaching? Do you think that matters? Didn't matter to me, thank God. And so we've got this, mending. That's a ministry, mending. Will you look at another passage which uses the same word, Galatians, chapter 6. Galatians, chapter 6. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, and I always like to remember this as two possible translations and give ourselves the benefit of it. You can be overtaken in a fault, can't you? You're just caught doing it. That's a terrible position to be in. But you can be overtaken by a fault. It somehow catches you up and trips you up before you know where you are. Well, whichever it is, ye which are spiritual, restore, that's the word, mend, perfect, readjust. And it's found in medical works in the days of the Apostle Paul, written by the Greeks, for the adjusting of a fractured limb. So here's a ministry for the readjusting of the saints. Now, when you say readjusting, it suggests that there's been some fracture or dislocation or something, hasn't there? Well, there has been. A most violent dislocation has happened. At the end of the Acts of the Apostles, the people of Israel were given their very last opportunity to consider the Lord Jesus Christ as their Messiah, repent and believe. The Apostle Paul spent a whole day going through Moses and the prophets concerning him. And they disagreed among themselves and he knew, because he was a prisoner now, he'd been told, he knew that the time had come. Well spake the Isaiah the prophet. He quotes that dreadful passage which speaks about their eyes being closed and their hearts hardened. 
lest they should be healed. And he said the salvation or the healing, the healing of God is sent to the Gentiles. That's a terrible dislocation because you see, up to that moment a Gentile was a wild olive grafted into the olive tree of Israel. Now the olive tree is gone. Where does he come in? He needs to be readjusted to his new calling. And so at the beginning there was this ministry of readjustment. Now so far as we are concerned that's all over. There must have been many things explained which we would like to have had explained in the epistle to the Ephesians. But it's assumed in Ephesians that the adjustment has taken place they know the new calling and we've got to start where they left off and say well we must take things as they're written we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places we belong to Christ we are members of his body we discover no reference to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and so on. But these had to be readjusted. They had to be given their new orientation for the readjusting of the saints. For the work of the ministry and that may seem to suggest that when once a saint has been readjusted himself, he will not be then put on one side and say, now you sit there quietly, that's all that matters to you. Oh no! Now, having been readjusted himself, he could start helping somebody else. Because you see, the figure is a body. And every one of these folks who are believers and saved, every one of them without exception, is a member. And every member has its place and its function. So it's for the work of the ministry. And what particular work of the ministry? What is the one thing they're going to think of first of all? Contrary to usual t- teaching, not worldwide evangelizing, that must be done by somebody, friends. Oh yes, we're saying that, agreeing. But what does it say here? That's our first concern. For the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ. Supposing we agree, and it would be a dreadful thing if we didn't, that God knows his own business best. Supposing we admit that it's required in stewards that a man be found faithful. And that if God has said to you and to me, now if you belong to this company and calling, will you leave me, said God, to look after the worldwide evangelizing? Will you allow me to send other people, perhaps not exactly on the same ground that you are? Will you allow me to tell you that what I want you to do is to see to it that you build up the body of Christ? And if you say, well, it looks a bit narrow-minded to do that, in whose mind does it seem narrow-minded? Oh, Mr. So-and-so. Well, what does Mr. So-and-so count in the estimate of what God has already said? It's not that we're indifferent. But we must put first things first. And God has put this first. And I have a feeling that if only the church of the one body had been built up, it would have been such an exhibition of the purpose of grace that it would be preaching a gospel more clearly and toned than any amount of evangelistic campaigns could ever be. But that's another matter. Now we've got a goal in front of us. Till we all come. Till we all arrive. So we're not there yet. Till we all arrive at something. This time, not the unity of the spirit, but the unity of the faith. It's one of the things that perplex leaders of churches today. It's a source of anxiety and a great snare. Because there is no yet, no yet unity of the faith among the believer. You and I believe certain things. We meet another person, he's most obviously and evidently a Christian. But some of the things we believe, he abominates. And some of the things he believes, we cannot tolerate. Well now, that multiplies. The more individuals you meet, the more denominations you know, the more it seems that instead of being a unity of the faith, it's anything but a unity. And so at long last the temptation is yielded to, it's been yielded to before, to meet together and to discuss not what we are to believe, but how much we can give away of the faith in order to attain to a unity. Uh, You believe so and so, will you drop that? And I believe so and so, and I'll drop that. 
and you drop that, and you drop that, and then we all be united. That's not the unity of the Spirit. That's compromise. So it may be, much as we would desire it, it may be something that we'll never attain here, immediately. It's something to which we press. One day, one day, we're going to see eye to eye. One day, we're going to know what the faith is and believe it entirely without additions. But whether we're ever going to attain it by our meetings and our books and our studies here is another matter. But isn't it good to know that it's on the program? That even though we may be far from it at the moment, it's something to which we press. The perfect of the saints, till we all come in or unto the unity of the faith. Now this unity of the faith embraces so much that I want to ask you to allow me to take it as a fresh subject, not to rush it at the end, but we'll read it. Till we all arrive unto the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. We'd have to discuss whether that means knowledge or whether it means acknowledge. Because there's a little difference. We'd have to discuss why the word Son of God comes here because do you know this? That that's the only time that the Son of God is mentioned in the whole of Paul's prison epistles. And there's a reason we must seek to find why. Unto a perfect man. And this word man rules out children and women. This is the word which is translated husband in the next chapter. Now it doesn't, it doesn't rule out you dear friends who are sitting listening to me, but it does mean that you cannot be a perfect man and be the bride of the Lamb at the same time. Because this cannot comprehend a woman. It must be a male, it must be a husband. So the church of the one body cannot at the same time be the bride. We'll have to look at that. And the measure... The measure to which we're pressing. Oh, look at it. The measure of the stature. Now, stature is so many feet and inches. But the same word is used in John's Gospel when the parents said, he is of age. Not he's five foot ten, but he's of age. Full growth. Real manhood at last attained. The measure of the stature of the fullness of the Christ. And if you take this apart, and divide it up into its parts with the word of as the break, you'll find it sevenfold again. We had a sevenfold unity of the Spirit. Let me read it again and put an undue stress on the word of, and see the way in which it's subdivided. Till we all come in the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge, of the Son of God, unto a per- oh, Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of, the stature of, the fullness of the Christ. You may say, well, that's, that, that's rather low down, that's playing with it, but still, there it is, step by step. A sevenfold unity of the Spirit, a sevenfold unity of the faith. So, God willing, when we meet together next time, we will endeavour to open up, as far as God gives us grace, the meaning of that next unity. We've had to spend time on the unity of the Spirit, with the one baptism and the one hope and the one Lord, here we'll have spent another time on the unity of the faith and see whether by the grace of God we can gather lessons for ourselves and blessings out of it afterwards to our fellows.